on today's special episode of Vitality Radio, I interview a gentleman, Scott Shera, who I found out about about a year ago. I won't go into a lot of detail on the intro, just to say that this is a story everybody needs to hear. It's not a particularly easy story to listen to, um, but um, I will say there's a lot of hope and beauty in this story, even though it is um, a story about tragedy. And I have wanted Scott to be on the show ever since I first heard his story uh, many months ago and was grateful uh, to actually be speaking at an event with him uh, a few or about a month ago. And uh, thankfully, he was willing to come on the show and share his story and the story of his sweet grace. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and uh, interview Scott Shera. All right, and now it is time for me to introduce you to my guest. His name is Scott Shera. Scott and I met at a really wonderful event in Salt Lake City uh, just about a month ago, I think it's been now, the Your Health Freedom Symposium, where we were both speakers. I um, was aware of Scott's story prior to meeting him and was uh, fortunate enough to get to sit down to dinner with him uh, before the uh, event and uh, get to hear a little bit more and get to know him. And I will say this, you know, as a an individual who heard the story that you're about to hear about Grace, I um, was just devastated. I don't, I don't know of a better word. What I heard as a father from a father uh, absolutely ripped my heart out in significant ways. It was a really, really difficult thing to listen to. But then when I got to meet the man who tells the story of his daughter, um, I recognized that in the most horrifying circumstances in life, beauty and amazing things can be built from the ashes of these of these tragedies and i believe that scott is doing just that with what he is doing sharing this story and fighting for change in a system that absolutely requires change so scott i want to welcome you to vitality radio with a big thank you for what you're doing well, it, it's uh, you're giving me way more credit than I deserve. I what a nice introduction. I mean, the reality is, God did not give us a spirit of fear, and uh, I believe, yeah, I have a responsibility. You know, it's it's as simple as that. I mean, he he has um, opened up. I've been recording the miracles, Jared, and you know, there's at least sixty doors that he's opened up to help us share this to help save people's lives. I mean, Genesis 50, 20 is definitely in play here. And, you know, which is the short version is um, what you meant for harm, God meant for good so that many could be saved. And Grace's, Grace's um, death has, I mean, it's definitely woken me up, but it's also, I mean, tons of stories are are surfacing where people are getting a hold of us and sharing the difference that it made. In fact, when we met in Utah, a lady came up to me there and said that she had heard Grace's story early, which I started doing interviews last December. And she heard the story in February and it motivated her to get a friend of hers out of the hospital, which saved his life. So, I mean, that's, that stuff is very encouraging. I mean, you have no idea where this, where, where life is going to take you. And I sure did not think that it was going to take me on this path. 
Yeah, well, and I I will say this. I don't know that uh, there was a man more ready for uh, the path that you're on than you are. You you really every time I talk to you, and now we've had you know three or four separate conversations. Um, I'm really just blown away by your um, your passion for what you're doing now, for sharing this these truths and getting the word out. Um, it's it would be easy, I think. Uh, for some people to crawl into their little cave and uh, mourn their losses as opposed to going out fighting. And you're you're out there fighting for truth every single day. And, and I, I greatly appreciate it. But before we go too far down the path of me telling you how great you are, let's, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, we want to stop that right away. Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, uh, I, I can see your head exploding as, as we're going here. <laughs> Uh, let's actually, for those who are unaware, uh, I would like you to share your story and Grace's story, please. So I'm going to introduce Grace first so that you get a sense of, of my little stinker. So, um, she was 19 when she died. Uh, Grace had Down syndrome. She died October 13th of 2021. Um, she was my best buddy. I mean, you know, that being said, what does, what does that mean? Well, Grace was very high functioning for somebody with Down syndrome. And, you know, to give you a broad brush of what that means, we we never vaccinated Grace. So that's part of the reason she was high functioning. Um, of course, God made her that way. But I give my wife a lot of credit because she she was primarily responsible for homeschooling Grace. And, you know, Grace could read and write, which is fantastic. She was... Um, in, in geography, for example, she knew every country and its capital. I mean, I don't think I wow. could I could uh, get that down in 10 lifetimes. Um, but where where she was where she was off the charts was with love. And I'm going to share a story, but I just want to share a couple other things. So I still, you know, of course, Cindy was primarily responsible for homeschooling. My wife's name is Cindy, but, you know, I got to do the fun stuff that dads get to do. So I taught Grace how to drive, for example. And the first time it happened, she was 13. We were driving together uh, over to a, one of our hunting properties. And we got there and she said, Dad, can I drive? I said, you bet. And so at this point, I had a three-quarter ton diesel pickup truck. This thing was big, you know. And so this, she's she's only four feet tall at this point, you know. So I get the seat all all the way up and get her all situated, and and um, and I I had her shift and you know the whole thing, and you know when and she was very obedient. So when I told her to hit the brakes, and you know she just hit them too hard the first time, you almost go through the windshield, but then she got it. She did just great. So then, you know, if, if you just picture this, any dad listening to this, you've got to picture this. So in your mind, you just let a 13-year-old drive your truck. So that's a problem, right? It's not a problem for me, but it's going to be a problem when you get home, right? Because moms uh -huh. don't like that stuff. So all the way home, I told Grace, you know, we just practice this. I said, don't tell mom, don't tell don't tell mom. Well, we weren't in the house. I bet you we were in the house less than one second. And she blurts out, you know, dad, let me drive. And then, oh, you know, so then, I mean, you know what it's like. So, <laughs> and, you know, but she got, she really got the humor of that. So, I mean, so it was almost as if, you know, me telling her to not tell mom just spurred it on. So she was, she was all primed when we got in the house. So anyway. 
she uh, on the love chart, you know, how do we really define love? You know, so, you know, at the beginning, when you're married, love is an emotion. As you become an adult, you realize love is a choice. But then as you reconcile your life with God, you realize, no, it's it's neither one of those. In fact, you can't hit the standard that he lays out without him. And, you know, Grace called me earthly dad. She called my wife earthly mom. Um, she she showed the love that that God wants us to show um, better than any person I've ever met in my my life. Uh, at her funeral, um, many people came up to us because her her funeral was was pretty big. Four hundred people came. You know, she had quite a um, a following in our area because everybody she met, she just was. She just was so unique and how you know, she was encouraging and funny and and just everything. And she just embraced everybody. You know, she didn't judge. So, you know, at her funeral, people were coming up to us and saying how great of a job we did with Grace, because we had all these things that Grace did on display. And, you know, when I when I got to speak at Grace's funeral, I just said, you know, that is what you're complimenting us is on is not true at all because grace was easy you know we didn't have to do anything other than just follow her lead she was the easiest kid you could ever have and you know what the standard is is loving the unlovable which as i shared at the funeral and i i've only grown a little bit in 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 god's standard but you know love the unlovable you know, that's the standard. Grace was lovable, so she was easy to love, but try loving the unlovable. And as I shared at Grace's funeral, I'm not certain I can even do that in my sleep. So, but I know I can do it when when God's leading me. So anyway, that's a little bit about my buddy Grace. Uh, we have a website, ouramazinggrace.net. And if anybody's inclined to go there, of course, we have all kinds of research. Her story is well documented, but more importantly, take a look at all the pictures and videos of, of Grace so you get a sense of who she was because she is the motivation for me being out there and uh, and sharing so other people don't have to lose their best buddies. So <clears throat> moving on to what happened. Uh, so we're going to go back to last October. We had gone to a concert where we think where Grace picked up COVID. We don't know for certain, but we ended up testing her with a home test on October 1st. And the reason we did wasn't because she was doing bad. It's just, we just thought she had a cold, but we were planning on going to a wedding and we did not want to um, take, we didn't want to go if Grace had COVID. So we tested her with a home test. She tested positive. Again, no biggie to us. We were, we were on the frontline doctor's protocol. Uh, so I really didn't think anything of it. But on October 6th, Grace couldn't not maintain her oxygen level above 90. It was at 88, 89%. And unfortunately, we perceived that as an emergency. And, you know, last time I checked, we need oxygen. So, I mean, it is an emergency, but the the emergency wasn't at the level we perceived it at. And that was one of the programming things that I fell trapped to. You know, I, of course, did not believe in the the alphabet networks, but still you hear this stuff over and over and you unfortunately believe it. And I didn't check into it further, um, which I should have. If I would have done that and not believed the the oxygen, you know, we, we tested the oxygen, so I know the numbers. But if I would have not um, 
took her to the urgent care, which ended up in the emergency room next. Um, Grace would be alive today. And the reason I know that is because three days after Grace died, I went into the a different hospital, substantially worse. I just about died the first night. And they saved me in 24 hours. And they did it because they did not follow the protocols that they put Grace on. So Grace really just needed oxygen to, to walk through that short time and uh, she would be alive today. So, you know, ultimately we we admitted her to the hospital or, you know, the, the emergency room physician at the time said, you know, Grace's oxygen is such that I think we should admit her to the hospital for three, four days. We'll put her on oxygen and a steroid and she'll be fine. And, you know, now this, you know, the second piece of how I was programmed to believe is to trust the white coat. I had no reason to believe that what the emergency room nurse was telling me was a lie. But if we set this up just with a, a little bit of context, when we went to the urgent care the earlier the day on earlier in the day on October sixth, they did blood work, and one of the blood chemistry parameters is called D dimer, and D dimer shows your propensity to clot, and so you know they made that into an emergency, which again clotting is an emergency, but there was this. There was this way about everything that it was um, a pressure situation, um, you know, really praying EY on on the family. So the doctor there recommended, well, this is so urgent. We need to take Grace by ambulance from urgent care to the hospital. And so I rode in the ambulance with Grace. You know, Grace was doing fine. You know, she's, there was no issues, but they, they, um, they made it into an emergency and, and I fell trapped to it. Ultimately, you know, as the, the hospital state progressed, so her first day in the hospital was October 7th. Uh, I, I was with her. I perceived it as just, it's just going to be a fun time with my best buddy. You know, I'm there as an advocate, but my view of advocacy at that point in time was, you're there to comfort the person so they're not lonely. I didn't realize that my job was to make sure they did not kill her. So this seems really strange. And when I go through the details, you can make your own judgment. But I came to the conclusion, and I'm just going to jump to the conclusion right now. Uh, so Grace died October 13th. We got the records the first week in November. We went through all the records. Um by April, so in April, I had about 500 hours of research and really all on Grace's records and what happened to try to put all the puzzle pieces together. And in April, I concluded she was murdered. That was a fairly significant step to me because then it opened up what is going on and why is this happening? So I'm going to get to the point where going through the records and then you can make your own judgment if you conclude that she was murdered. But, you know, ultimately that is the conclusion I came to. And we had several doctors and medical professionals that came to that conclusion before me. But before I wanted to make that claim, I just had to feel comfortable. It went not feel comfortable. That's not right. You know, I'm analytical. I needed to prove it. And so I don't need a court to prove right. that because a court is not in pursuit of the truth, but I needed to prove it in my heart because if I'm sharing something, I've got to know that it's true. 
And so as we walked through, so, you know, the first day, it, October 7th was, was pretty normal. We just had fun watching movies. And uh, the next day, October 8th, the doctor came in uh, and said, you need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And this is a, another very significant point because my perspective of a ventilator, I'll call it my ventilator paradigm at that point was set by President Trump because at the beginning of the pandemic, he had said, we have a ventilator shortage. So I just looked at a ventilator. It must be a tool in the tool chest for COVID. But at that point, you know, you can see God's hand in these details because at that point I said to the doctor, I asked him two questions. Number one is what is that based on? What is your recommendation based on? And then second, what is the prognosis if Grace goes on a ventilator? And so the second question he said, well, only 20% of people walk out alive once they're put on a ventilator. So my antenna went up. And once he got out of the room, I started researching ventilators and found out, oh my gosh, we are not putting Grace on a ventilator. In fact, a ventilator should never be used with COVID. And I'm not a medical doctor, but I can I can prove it. And I can prove it because they have a 90% kill rate. And most of the people that walk out alive, the 10% die in the first year from damage. So they're, you know, the, the issue with COVID pneumonia, which is what they call it, is clotting in the lungs. It is not a breathing issue. So you do not need a ventilator for, for COVID. So ultimately, that led me to know that we are not doing that. But his answer to the first question was, well, we did a blood gas draw last evening, and the numbers show that Grace needs to have a ventilator. So I said, well, what time did you do the blood gas draw? And he told me, and, and I knew what was going on during that time. We were working with Grace, we meaning me and two of the nurses to get a, her situated. They had her on a high flow cannula, which was bothering her. They want to get her on a BiPAP. And so they took the blood gas draw when Grace was at a high stress time. So I told him that and I said, I'd like you to retake the numbers. So they did. And Grace was fine. So, I mean, they were making a recommendation on false numbers. So that's that's significant. And Grace, you know, as I said, she never needed to be on a ventilator, but they asked us four times subsequent to that event for a pre-authorization or a pre-approval to put Grace on a ventilator just in case. In fact, one of the doctors, the hospitalist, said to me, you know, they, they frame this as if that your daughter's going to die which, I mean, Grace was fine. I was there. She was doing just fine. But he says, you know, in the room with Grace there, he says, well, isn't a 20% isn't a chance better than no chance? So they frame this like there's no chance. Well, it isn't like that at all. I mean, we know there's a, a extremely high chance of surviving COVID. In fact, across the entire population, it's only, it's only a 1.1% chance and that's with the COVID diagnosis, which most of those are lies when they put them on the death certificate. But literally using the death certificates that have COVID-19 pneumonia as the cause of death, which that's on Grace's death certificate, but that's not how she died. So we've had 1.1 million people die that way, which happens to also be 1.1% of the population. So it's, it's, um, it's crazy to... It's not 1.1% of the population. It's 1.1% of the cases of COVID.
Right. All right. So now let's go back to to the story. I just want to give you one other tidbit, and then I, I really want to jump into Grace's last day because that is that's what you remember from Utah when I, I drilled that down with the slide. So right. the on October 9th, which was the second day we were in the hospital, and this is significant because how the it shows how the hospitals falsify records on purpose, I believe, and. What happened is Grace, um, she got up. She's so cute. You know, she's, she's got this BiPAP mask on. She gets up and she's trying to tell me through the BiPAP that she's hungry. And I can't understand her because the BiPAP is on. So she starts signing. And of course, I've already explained. I mean, I'm a dummy, so I don't, under, I don't understand sign language. But she learned how to sign before she could talk. So anyway, so I, I removed the BiPAP and she tells me, so then I order food and I start feeding her and the nurse comes running in and says, you can't do that. I said, what's the reason? And she said, well, Grace's oxygen saturation is only at 85%. So I started processing that and thinking that that cannot be true. I mean, just yesterday, she's at 95% and she didn't even have a BiPAP mask on. So what's going on here? So I had my COVID materials in the room, which included my own oxygen saturation finger monitor. So I put it on Grace and it read 95%. So I called her back in and I said, is my finger monitor accurate? And she said, yes, it is. I said, well, then why is my finger monitor reading 95% when your, your monitor is reading 85%? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. And I said, well, if that's a known why don't you proactively change out the leads so that it reads accurately, given this is the primary tool you're using to manage my daughter's care? And she snottily responded to me, you should just be thankful you caught this. And we caught this multiple times. The hospital has a vested interest in charting oxygen numbers that are arbitrarily low. And you, this will shock people, but you know, most people are not in the room when their loved one died with COVID. And most people accept the government money for helping bury your loved one. They don't, they're not the wiser that they really didn't die of COVID. But the few people that have gotten the records, you're going to see a pattern of low oxygen. And the reason you're going to see that pattern is that it justifies the ventilator. So then they have a pattern of low oxygen, which is not even true, as I, I found out in Grace's case, but that justifies the ventilator. So ultimately, um, I want to jump into Grace's last day on this earth, which was October 13th, because we'll go on a bunch of rabbit trails as I walk through that. And then, then you can ask questions and we can tie it together with other stories and why this is happening. But, you know, so Grace's last day, October 13th of 2021. It started with the doctor calling Cindy and I at home, and he called at eight o'clock. So you would first wonder, well, why are you at home, Scott? Well, because on October 10th, I was taken out by an armed guard. And that's another story that, that we don't need to go in, into now. But ultimately, I was challenging Grace's care, and they did not like that. And so I got taken out by an armed guard, and we had to hire an attorney to uh, negotiate with the hospital attorney to get my daughter Jessica in as a replacement advocate. My wife could not be there because she had COVID. So now the doctor calls Cindy and I at eight o'clock in the morning. This was to follow up on a call that he had with us the evening before October 12th. And this was for the request for the fifth time to put or to give a pre-authorization for a ventilator. So 
he calls, we say no for the fifth time. He immediately switches gears and said, Grace had such a good day yesterday that we should work on nutrition. So Grace is malnourished at this point because they wouldn't let me feed her. They wouldn't let Jess feed her. And the nurses only gave her uh, a couple of protein shakes. And so they sedated her instead of feeding her. Well, he also, he recognized, you know, as I said, Grace had such a good day yesterday. Then he also said, well, we should get her out of bed, get her, you know, he wanted to get her organs going so that we can get her out of there. I mean, that's how we framed the discussion. And we knew Grace had such a good day the day before because Jess was there and she monitored her oxygen all night long and it was at 98, 99%. So you just got to consider this is how the day starts. The doctor encouraging us to work on nutrition. We unfortunately approved a feeding tube based on his recommendation. And I think it all fits together as we walk through this last day. But you know, obviously we didn't know it was Grace's last day. We didn't know that there was an agenda at this point. We just thought, okay, well, they're going to get her out of bed, uh, get the feeding going so that we can, we can get her out of there. So all these circumstances I'm going to go through now are uh, significant to why I believe that Grace was murdered. So, and it, the only thing that is not, um, right out of the records or right out of our contemporaneous notes is my theory as to why. So I believe Grace was taken out that day because we did not approve the ventilator. And I believe that the hospital finally got the message that this family is never going to approve the ventilator. And so we've got to figure out another way to take his daughter out. And I say that with a fair amount of confidence for two reasons. One is the ventilator is about a $300,000 payday. So you think, well, they would never do this for money. Well, if you watch what's happening and you start studying the numbers, you see, in fact, they are doing things for money. And the ICU uh, beds were full in the hospital Grace was in that day. I found all this data online and the emergency room was full. So as my wife saw it, as I pieced this together, she said, Grace was worth more dead than alive. So it, I already mentioned Presidex caused the first cause of death listed on Grace's death certificate. And then COVID-19 pneumonia was the second cause of death. Well, the first cause of death was a $7,500 bonus. The second cause of death was, was a $13,000 bonus. So my wife saying Grace was worth more dead than alive was spot on because they couldn't milk it for any more if we wouldn't approve the ventilator. Uh, you know, Grace's second cause of death was had nothing to do with COVID-19 pneumonia, as you're going to find out here in a minute. So now we get off the phone with him. We've approved the feeding tube. We're thinking, okay, well, Grace's, we're gonna, they're gonna start working on, on an end date to get Grace out of here. Well, there was a 14 year ICU experience nurse in charge of Grace's care her last day. Immediately after we got off the phone with the doctor, or, or shortly thereafter, my daughter Jessica said to that nurse that she was gonna take a shower. There's a shower in the room. When I was in the room, they would not let me leave. So I showered right in the room. And so that nurse then told Jessica, you cannot take a shower in the room. And so Jessica objected saying, well, you allowed my dad to take a shower in the room. Why can't I? And <clears throat> she said, I don't care what we did for your dad. If you're going to take a shower, you need to go home. So Jessica talked with Grace. 
and said, hey, is this okay? Jessica lives only five minutes away. So she just said, hey, Grace, I'll be gone for about an hour. Is that okay? Uh, Grace was prone at this time. So Grace gave her a thumbs up. And um, when Jessica got back, she overheard the hospitalist and another doctor, along with the 14-year ICU nurse in the hallway, say the family's not going to like this. So she said, what aren't they going to like? Well, while Jessica was gone, they strapped Grace down to the bed. And so she said, you know, that's called restraining her. So they said, what's, so she said, what's the reason? And they said, well, she wanted to get out of the bed to go to the bathroom. You remember the doctor was just told us an hour earlier, we're going to get her out of the bed to sit in a chair. You know, so why can't she get out of the bed to go to the bathroom? So instead of helping my little buddy out of the bed, they make her poop in the bed. And then they use that as the excuse to restrain her. And then they ratchet up this Presidex sedation med to 14 times the dose they had her on starting four days earlier. You remember this drug is only supposed to be used for 24 hours. Now they've got her on it for four and a half days. So I don't think that's any coincidence when you think of their plan, but really the, the biggest uh, issue with them taking Grace out the next or that day was that eight minutes after they increased the dose of Presidex. So this is at 1048 in the morning. They had around 14 times the dose. So now Grace is really getting out of it. Eight minutes after that, they put an illegal do not resuscitate order on Grace. And one of the attorneys who's re who reviewed this said he believes the timing of that DNR order is so suspicious in that he believed that the, they, they thought the Presidex would take Grace out. So they had to get the DNR order in place in order to uh, accomplish their goal. And this is one of the reasons I share this, this story because we've had, oh, I mean, lots of people reach out to us with similar situations of illegal DNRs. And this is illegal in the United States. In the UK, doctors putting DNR orders on patients without their permission is the standard of care. And I'm here to tell you, to tell you now that they're doing this as the standard of care illegally in the United States. A reporter flew to Appleton. In fact, I just talked with him yesterday. He flew to Appleton two months ago to interview me um, regarding illegal DNRs because he's doing a national DNR uh, case that's going to be released on the media January 9th, uh, a big investigative story about this whole DNR issue. Anyway, I just talked with a guy yesterday that told me that as a condition of him going into the hospital, they made him sign his own DNR order. So this is not uncommon, folks, and you should never be signing the, a DNR order. You know, in Grace's case, Grace didn't sign a DNR order, nor did we. They did it behind the scenes. So as we keep going, they put the they, they gave her a dose of lorazepam now at 1125, which is an anti-anxiety med. Well, you don't need an anti-anxiety med when you're almost passed out from a sedation med. Then they put in the feeding tube at 1137. They didn't start feeding her until 159, over two hours and 20 minutes later. At this point, Grace is knocked out. And in spite of all of that, so Grace is still alive, but she's almost knocked out from everything they did. But in order to finish her off at 546, they gave her another dose of lorazepam. At 549, another dose, just three minutes later. And then at 615, they gave her a two milligram dose of morphine as an IV push. So in 29 minutes, she had 
Presidex, lorazepam, and morphine. Still, even that didn't get me to the point where I thought she was murdered because, you know, mistakes happen. Medical malpractice is the number three cause of death in the, in the United States behind um, cancer and heart disease. So what got me there was in order for that to happen, the doctor had to order those meds. So obvious, right? But more importantly, the, the pharmacist had to sign off on the order. Well, the pharmacist had to know better. Third, because those meds are contraindicated according to the morphine package insert, the alarm that would have went off at the nurse's station had to be overwritten. And then fourth is the 14 year experience ICU nurse had to deliver those meds. So, I mean, that was the true second cause of death, not COVID-19 pneumonia. And so what happened after that, so this is at 6.15. Shortly after that, Grace started getting cold. Jessica is trying to get the nurses in to take a temp. She's asking for help. They refused to come in. Finally, Jessica called us at 7.20, panicking. She said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They refuse to come in the room. So Cindy and I start screaming to save our daughter. And this is when we learned she's DNR. They hollered back, she's DNR. We hollered back, she's not DNR, save our daughter. And they refused. They they stood outside the room. Jessica estimated 30 nurses outside the room, Jared, at this point because of the shift change. And we ended up watching Grace die on a FaceTime call at 727, seven minutes later. We found out after the fact because of, you know, after uh, later on that evening after, you know, Jess and Cindy cleaned Grace up and, you know, all the things that happen after somebody dies, just said there was, Dad, there was an armed guard outside the room. So we presume the armed guard was there to prevent any doctor or nurse from coming in and saving Grace. And we know the armed guard was assigned to Grace's room because after Grace died, she still had the BiPAP mask on. And we learned through the, a medical malpractice nurse that Grace could have still been revived after they called her death. Jessica crawled in bed with Grace to hold her after she died. And that armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her for 20 minutes until I got Cindy there. And it's, it's hard to grasp. Then I'll just give you one last detail here, Jared, and then you can ask some questions. But after the, the um, coroner was there and, you know, the, the process of, of um, the death goes, had, had gone on, um, our pastor walked Cindy out in a wheelchair and one of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and she leaned down and said to my wife, Mrs. Shara, me and several nurses don't think Grace should have died today. So, I mean, that was the clue that we had to really dig and figure out what is going on. And, you know, now, you know, of course I, I see it in a lot different light than I did that day, but, um, you know, that's the, that's the short version of Grace's death. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to let you just get all the way through that um, because the details are so, are so crucial, but I want to ask you a few really important questions. Um, and I, I want to ask you some questions that I 
anticipate you've probably heard all of these before, but they're questions I haven't heard you answer, and I'm really curious. Um, and and before I even get into that, I'm so sorry for your loss. It I can't even fathom being in the position that you were in that day, or that your your poor daughter, daughters, uh, your wife. It's just unbelievable to me. But here's the thing that I think is really interesting to me. So I come from a long line of people who have been pretty critical of medicine in this in this country. I do Vitality Radio. I tell people on a regular basis that this show is about half about advocacy and about half about education. And I, I try hard to find stories like yours that need to be shared um, for the purpose of advocacy and really just waking people up to some realities that uh, that we need to deal with. You mentioned something earlier that I think most people don't know. I've discussed it on this show many times, and that is that medical malpractice is the third leading cause of death. There's some evidence that it could be as high as the number one leading cause of death, depending on how you define malpractice. Sure. And, right. and uh, so we know there's some pretty big issues there. Um, and yet most people are, I think, under the illusion and to some degree, probably blissfully so, that uh, when they go to the hospital or the doctor, they're going to get excellent care and they're going to come out better than they were when they went in. Now, you and I both know that that's not always the case. And certainly during COVID, we saw a lot of pretty uh, horrifying things. And I've interviewed other people who've had these types of things happen on this show. But the question I have is, you said that it took you until April to finally put together enough detail and um, to, for you to be able to say you believe that this was intentional, that this was murder, not malpractice. Um, so I'm curious what, first off, as, and as an emotional being that you are, that every father is going to be when he loses his daughter. Yeah. Um, I'm shocked that it took you until April, honestly, because I think my initial response would have been, oh my gosh, they just killed my daughter. And I would have had been talked down from that position, if that makes sense. So I'm curious what your mindset was right after this happened and then what happened between then and April. That's a fantastic question. I mean, it, I'm going to sound like a complete dummy here, but that's okay. If it wakes somebody up, that's good. But so, so I went into the hospital three days after Grace died. Um, I was in the hospital four days and I just about died the first For night. your own I, illness, right? Right. Yeah. I had, I had COVID significantly worse than Grace. And, you know, so they saved me. Okay. Um, I get home. I, I was down to 147 pounds. I was on oxygen. I was pretty feeble. One of the doctors that we work with um, on a regular basis, she called me, um, I think it was the day after Grace's funeral. So Grace's funeral was put off. It was, um, I think it was on the 29th of October. So it was put off a couple of weeks so that I could recover enough to be at the funeral. And so then she called me, I think the day after, and she said, Scott, you know, you really got to get the records. And so I did, I sent in the request then and we got the records. And so her and I started going through the records and we had everything pieced together by November 8th. And so then I sent a request to the hospital um, through their patient relations department for a meeting with the hospital CEO and the doctor. This was under my biblical responsibility to 
you know, meet the people who you think killed your daughter. But at this point, I just thought they would want to know. I thought, well, Grace's death is an anomaly. You know, they would want to know all the things that we found in the records and that we pieced together. Uh, at this point, we had about 100 hours in it. So I thought, well, they're, they're going to want to know this. Um, and so the first clue was on December 2nd. So it took them three weeks to say, no, we're not going to meet with you. So they didn't want to meet with us. And then they sent a letter dated December 16th, which we received on Christmas Eve, that addressed some of the claims I had sent to them. And it was basically a complete denial. And so I thought, well, what, this is strange. And so then I, you know, so you remember, so I start with thinking Grace, you know, this was just, meta, you know, it's just a mistake. Um, you know, I knew she's dead, obviously. And I knew there's something going on here because of what the nurse said to my wife as they're walking out. I knew there's something, you know, why would there be an armed guard? Why don't they come in and save her? Why is there a DNR? So all this stuff is, is you know, rambling through my head. But then what happened on December 8th when they denied the, or December 2nd, I'm sorry, when they denied meeting with us, I sent complaints to the state agency that regulates hospitals and the state agency that regulates doctors. So they both did investigations and they sent us letters dated uh, January 24th and December 3rd, respectively. That's when the light bulb went on. And that's when I really started digging into is this murder? And so the reason the light bulb went on is both of those investigations came back and said the hospital and the doctor did no wrong. I think, well, how can this be? And that's the reason the light bulb went on is, you know, I got, you know, I go out to the mailbox, I open the letter thinking, well, we're going to finally get some justice. And I see, oh my gosh, he did no wrong. And you read the letter and it says they did this investigation. It was all a sham. So when I read, you know, I connected the dots. Well, they're all in on this. And then I started reading some of Dr. Elizabeth Felit's work about allocated care, about the money. And then, you know, you start going through this and, um, you know, I, we are, we are programmed, which I think is a, an accurate programming as you and I were talking about before the show. I think it's accurate to believe innocent until proven guilty. I think it's a right way to approach things. Uh, so, I mean, that's why I didn't, um, I didn't call it murder until I finally, I talked with a pharmacist and when she connected the dots as to how the pharmacist has to sign off, um, thought, oh my gosh, you know, you look at this and we had an intensivist review the records already and said, this med combination killed your daughter. So, I mean, all these pieces were coming together where I could finally say confidently, on air that Grace was murdered. Up until that point, you know, one of the attorneys who I talked with said, because uh, I, I said, what, what, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to share the message. I want people's lives to be saved. He's, and so I said, what, what are you worried about me sharing? He said, as long as you have the truth, um, you don't have anything to worry about. And so at that point, I felt that I had the truth and you know, my attitude now is that if they want to sue me because I'm calling it murder, bring it on. I mean, I, I don't care. I, I don't care. I care about getting this message out. So if that's what it takes to get the message out, they want to sue me. And I mean, I've got the truth. So show me that you didn't murder her. I mean, how can you, 
put somebody on a sedation drug that says specifically to not be used to run 24 hours? How can you give somebody a combination of three meds that are contraindicated in a 29 minute window? How can you put an illegal DNR order on, on somebody? Of course, when this goes to trial, they're gonna have all kinds of excuses, but give me, give me a reason that this works that isn't a, that is not a blatant lie. You know, for example, with the DNR order, they claim that, well, we had multiple conversations with you and your wife and you didn't want to resuscitate Grace. Well, I mean, that's a complete lie. So, I mean, you know, so they, they make up stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, as I've learned, you know, thankfully, my background is as a CPA. So I'm used to audit trails and I took contemporaneous notes and I wrote up everything and I documented. But I mean, their their records are considered prima facie evidence in the court. So even though there's blatant lies, it's considered evidence. And I'll give you another example just to to to, um, to button up this issue of them lying. The doctor who was the COVID expert on the floor, the first day he came in and said, I think we should put your, and actually he he did this via phone to me. He was so arrogant, he wouldn't even wait. When he came in and you know spent his 30 seconds with Grace, I was in the bathroom and he announces that he's there. I said, just wait, I'm just getting done so I can meet you and talk to you. He wouldn't even wait. He called me and said, we should put Grace on Toxilisumab. So I said, spell it. So he spells it, I write it down. I said, I'll get back to you. So I start researching it. I call the doctor, friend of ours, and gave her the same information. She research, researches it. In two hours, we concluded, based on the research, that this drug is no good. In fact, the placebo group does better than the drug group. And the drug has umpteen side effects. So now they ask, well, what did you decide with respect to toxilisumab? I said, we decided not to do it. And they get mad at me. I said, well, they said, how come you decided not to do it? I show them the New England Journal of Medicine article that shows the placebo group does better than the drug group. And, you know, what do they do? They don't respect that. They just get mad. But, you know, of course, I just... I. Just assume this is the arrogance of the medical profession. I don't realize that there's a whole um, agenda behind this. So in toxilisumab, as an example, this is one of the approved drugs from the NIH. Well, what, what would you guess the amount they receive? This is without bonuses or anything, but what does the hospital receive, not as a bonus payment, but from the insurance company, from Medicare, so Grace was on Medicaid, so I know this for a fact because I have the records from another girl who got toxilisumab. One dose of toxilisumab, Jared, what's your guess as to what the bill is for that? Well, I'm going to take a real big stab at it, but I'll say 15,000 bucks. Pretty close, 22 grand for one dose. So do you think that there's a motivation to put somebody on a drug that's going to kill them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane. So did that answer your question? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really just, I'm very curious uh, about a lot of things in terms of, you know, your thought process and, and what you think, obviously you can't put yourself in the heads of those people at the hospital and, you know, what their motivations were. You can only uh, do your very best to uh, draw lines, I guess, uh, between, you know, their, uh, their behavior and their, and their actions and 
what they said versus what they did and so on. But um, there are some things that I think are incredibly troubling. Uh, well, anybody listening to this story would find these things incredibly troubling. And I am really curious, uh, based on your research in what, you, what you've seen, not just with Grace, but what you've heard now from others in the research that you've done, a hospital is not a doctor, right? A hospital is a bunch of doctors, hospitalists, as you said, nurses, in your case, a security guard, a variety of different people involved in all of this stuff, right? And all of the administration and everything else. How does something like this happen where it appears that uh, at least one nurse was saying, you know, crying foul in a whisper to your wife, but so many others appeared to be, you know, quote unquote, in on it. Um, I think that's a hard pill for the average person listening to swallow, you know, that, that, oh, so you're saying that there are multiple people, not just a doctor with a bunch of arrogance or some desire to make a bunch of money, but multiple doctors and nurses and uh, administration that are all, and not just that, but even beyond that, these other two organizations that you then you sent the complaints into that apparently have their back as well. How is it possible, Scott? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? How is it that there are so many people involved in the murder of your daughter? That's another fantastic question. So, you know, after I told you once I concluded Grace was murdered, that opened up a lot of doors in my mind mainly. Sure. So one of the one of the things that happened shortly after that is I thought, I wonder if disabled people are taken out at a higher rate than non-disabled. And I found out in fact That was my next question. So Yeah. There that so Grace was considered disabled because she had Down syndrome. And right. the disabled were taken out disabled females were taken out at eleven times higher rate than non-disabled females. Well, being disabled is not a comorbidity. That doesn't make any sense. So then- you Are know, you talking I, about during COVID specifically? During, specifically during COVID. So then I started okay. looking at, so when it's interesting, a couple of times God got me up during this time. At, I'm an early riser anyway, but not at 3.30 in the morning. And I, I was very motivated when I got up and I start looking at this idea of genocide and- Interestingly, in Grace's doctor's report, so when a doctor goes into the room, he has to write a report at the end of the day or whenever he chooses to write it. And so 22 doctors visited Grace in the seven days she was in the hospital. In those 22 reports, they referenced the fact that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times. How I, how I decided to even look at this is one of the attorneys, when he heard about Grace being strapped down to the bed, asked me, Scott, would you have been strapped down to the bed? I said, no, I would have made the nurses do their job. So that's when it dawned on me, this could be genocide. And then I started researching, after that, I started researching the Holocaust and spent almost the entire month of June researching the Holocaust. And what was the process? What happened there? How could this even happen? And I came to the conclusion that we're at the beginning of a worldwide Holocaust this time. And I'll give you two pointed um, examples as to, so people can think through, oh, how could this even happen? Um, because these two examples really helped me to see it. Because I had the same question to think, there's no way all these people can't be in on this. It doesn't make sense. But Hannah Arendt, who studied the Adolf Eichmann trial, was trying to wrap her head around 
the the World War II Holocaust, and she coined the phrase "banality of evil," and that re- that idea really helped me understand what's going on. So I'll just apply. So banality means common. So I'll apply this to Down syndrome just so people can have a clue. So in the United States, Down syndrome babies are murdered at the rate of 67% before they're born. So most people probably don't know that. Some countries have eliminated them uh, 100% and they're proud of it. So what does banality of evil look like? So when the young couple gets pregnant today, they go see the doctor. He congratulates them and immediately convinces them to do an amniocentesis. And he doesn't talk to them about the side effects of it. He just says, let's, you know, let's schedule this. So they unwittingly schedule that appointment. So now if that appointment uh, yields that the child is going to have a disability, and we're just calling out Down syndrome specifically here because Grace had Down syndrome, the doctor recommends an abortion. So, So the young people are not thinking this through. They're not grounded. They're just following the white coat's recommendation. So most young people today would abort their Down syndrome daughter or son. And so now these same young people are the ones who are taking care of my daughter, Grace. So their perspective of Grace is already that she's a useless eater. Why? Because they would not have had her. Plus, all of their medical training is designed around Obamacare, which is an allocation of resources. They believe we have limited resources and we need to allocate them. So the number one and number two causes of death with COVID are elderly and disabled. In the first, we're in month 33. So that's in the first 33 months of COVID. Well, it fits like a glove because apply the banality of evil to the elderly and you come up with the same conclusion. Right now, you know, I'm in the last generation that took care of their parents. Now, what happens when the parents get old, if they start slipping a little bit? I mean, the the kids instantly want to put them into a nursing home or a dementia center instead of taking care of them. So Now these elderly people get into the hospital, same thing. So then let's just take it one step further. In 1963, so Hannah Arendt's conclusion was in 1961. In 1963, Stanley Milgram did an experiment called the Milgram Obedience Experiment. And this really took it over the top for me because you think there's no way people could kill. And the fact is there is. And So right now, these medical professionals are told you're going to lose your job if you don't get the jab. Um, If you don't follow these NIH protocols, which come from the administration on down, you're going to lose your job. Well, the NIH protocols are literally what kill people. So in the Milgram obedience experiment, Stanley Milgram took 40 people. 20 of them were actors. 20 were participants. The participants did not know the other 20 were actors. The actors were hooked up to electrical leads. Of course, they were fake electrical leads, but the participants did not know that. The actors were answered were asked questions. If they answered a question wrong, the instructor told them to give the participant was told to the participant to give the actor a jolt. If the actor got six questions in a wrong, um, six questions in a row wrong, easy for me to say, the jolt would be enough to kill the person. And two thirds 
of the participants would kill the person for answering questions wrong. So now take that to today. So that was 59 years ago. The moral yeah. fabric of our country was substantially stronger than today. And the pressure, so this was just by the instructor telling them what to do. This wasn't with the pressure of losing your job. So that's how you can get everybody in on it. Or financial incentive <clears throat> or a variety of other things. Well, huge. Yeah. I mean, look at look at what's going on. We have the average patient, the average bonus payment to the hospital for patients in the hospital with COVID is $100,000. This is outside of insurance and patient pay. This is bonuses paid directly to the hospital for following protocols that kill. If the patient goes on remdesivir and a ventilator, that estimate goes up to 500000 in bonus payments to the hospital. So there's a huge financial incentive for the hospitals to follow these protocols. Huge. And in fact, they're still going on today. On October 13th, which is the anniversary of Grace's death, the public health emergency just got re-upped for another 90 days. So we have the financial incentive. Then we have, unbelievably, the PREP Act, which provides immunity from liability if they follow these crazy protocols that kill people. And then the third leg of the stool is the shroud of secrecy. So we were there. They killed Grace while we were there. Remember I told you about their falsifying oxygen numbers. What do you think happens if the family's not in the room, which is in 99.9% .9 of the cases? Well, how many families come in with an oximeter, right, uh, to double check? Yeah, it's the whole thing is just unbelievable. So then it's an interesting thing. I, uh, man, there's so many ways I could go with this, but um, I... <laughs> and and as you've talked, there's been a few questions that have popped into my mind. But let's let's go into into this next uh, or into the financial thing just a little bit more because we live in a society now where big 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 numbers are thrown around all the time. You know, the national debt is in the you know trillions, and it's most people can't even fathom what a trillion dollars looks like. Uh, I've tried to fathom what a trillion dollars looks like, and I can't even hardly figure it out. You're a CPA. You could probably do better than me. Um, and when we think about medicine and we think about uh, pharmaceuticals and we think about hospitals and you think about $100,000 or $22,000 for the one uh, drug that you talked about or $500,000, I don't know if that doesn't feel like a lot of money to the average person because they're looking at it in terms of how many millions and billions of dollars are in medicine and maybe it's just not that much money. Obviously, if I offer you, Scott, $500,000 to do something for me, you'll at least, your ears will at least perk up, right? Oh, 500,000, let's, let's have right. that conversation, right? <laughs> and you might think it's because I want you to take somebody out in the, uh, you know, the back alley or something, but $500,000 is no small amount of money. But then when you compound it, then you recognize that half a million dollars over and over and over and over and over again is tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars. I just did a show not too long ago where I was talking about uh, cholesterol medications in this country. And statin drugs are one of the biggest uh, revenue uh, sources for uh, pharma in this country, even though now the majority of them are um, 
generics at this point. And there was a doctor online that was saying, oh, anybody saying that money has anything to do with why we prescribe statins or you know why we're trying to lower people's cholesterols or any of this kind of is, is crazy. All these drugs are cheap now. It doesn't amount to anything. Well, I looked at the research and it does amount to something, Scott. It's about $20 billion in this country every single year for statin drugs. And I can tell you that every CEO at every pharmaceutical company's ears perk up when they hear the word $20 billion, right? This is not something that that can be glossed over. This money matters. And money is a massive driver for evil and corruption. We've seen it time and time and time again. People have killed for less than a dollar, certainly uh, for less than millions of dollars and, and half a million dollars in the case of, you know, uh, people with COVID. And so I just want to make sure we don't gloss over that. But now I want to ask this question because it's related. As you, you know, first, of course, your primary focus 100% was on what in the world happened in Grace's case. Right. But as you saw that, and as you came to your uh, conclusions that, you know, not only was this murder, but there were more than it's, it's, it's organizational. It's not just an individual. What did you then find about other people in similar situations? It's, it's, uh, you know, I take the time and respond to every one of these inquiries. So we set up Grace's website and people can send their stories and, you know, I follow up with every one of them. So we have 70 stories now posted, but the one that, that I really want to talk about is, um, is the, I think the worst one, um, this girl had down syndrome. Um, they, they convinced the family that the dad said they didn't want toxilisumab and the doctor pressured them. Uh, this is why I know toxilisumab is $22,000 a dose is because of this family. Um, it's hard to stomach. Uh, she got into the hospital on November 17th. She, uh, she was killed, murdered on, de on December 8th. So this is, this is the typical pattern that they want. They got her on remdesivir, a ventilator, all by these pressure ways. They put an illegal DNR on her, just like Grace. Uh, the record that I have, I mean, it's right in the record. The family doesn't want a DNR in the same record the doctor enters the DNR order. I mean, it's so sick. So I estimate that the hospital received $750,000 in this case. But what makes this case even worse, that people have to come to grips with what's happening because you think, well, this cannot be. This girl was taken. So Grace was taken out by Presidex, Lorazepam, Morphine. Okay. So that's that would that those are called end of life meds. So anybody that's in hospice care and they're at the end of their life, that's what they use to basically kill them at the end uh, to make their death be pain-free. Well, Grace was not in pain. There's no reason to be, be giving those meds. So in this case, this girl had um, fentanyl, midazolam, and verconium bromide. So those are uh, called death row meds. And where these came from, this is the thing that is so shocking. On April 6th of 2020, so now we're only a month into COVID, okay? April 6th of 2020, a group of doctors and pharmacists wrote to the states that have 
death row meds as their um, the the lethal injection med to take out people on death row. So they wrote to these states asking for their fentanyl, midazolam, and verconium bromide that they needed them for COVID patients. Why would you ever need those meds for COVID patients? And in fact, this girl was given all three of those the day before she died. And uh, then they, you know, they killed her. So I mean, this is, this is very, very sick. You know, it's so evil. And, you know, I share the details because I get that when, and, and this is why we have so much on Grace's website, because I get when people hear me talk for the first time, they think there is no way, but that's why I like to share the details because then if you can wake up and just start digging, you know, dig on your own. Don't believe me. I'm not asking anybody to believe me, but I just want people to wake up to see what's going on. Well, it'd be easy, I think, for the average person to dismiss someone like yourself, Scott. You know, this is a guy who lost his daughter, his heart's broken, he's angry, he's bitter, he's vengeful, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that's why I think it's so important that we recognize that this isn't a one-off situation, that this is happening over and over and over and over again. And not just to kids with Down, Down syndrome, but to the average patient going into the hospital with COVID and probably prior to COVID uh, and other levels, you know, this type of thing was happening as well. And if we start to recognize that this isn't just a one-time thing, because it's, e I think it's just about easy for any of us to say, oh, you know, one time something horrible happened. Right. But it's not systemic. It's not a problem that we really need to stand up and do anything about. You're an interesting, you're in a very interesting position because the life that you wanted to save is not savable anymore. And now you're out there and you keep saying, you've said this, I think at least three times as we've been talking, I just want to get the information out there, hoping that I can save another life. Well, how bad is this, Scott? How many lives need to be saved based on what's happening systemically in the medical system in our country? What I'm going to tell you next is going to blow your mind. So the finances, I just want to button up on the finances, then, uh, then okay. share these numbers with you. So in the hospital system that Grace died in, so you wonder about how does this accumulate? They have 142 hospitals in that system. In the first year of COVID, they received 10 billion in government bonuses. 1 billion is a thousand million. Yeah. Okay. So that they got 10,000 million in the first year of COVID. That's the system Grace died in. So that's how fast that accumulates and that's bonuses. So I also mentioned that elderly and disabled were the number one and number two causes of death for COVID in hospitals. And so there's a, a huge financial incentive for the government to, to incentivize hospitals to take these people out. The hospitals have become the killing fields for the government. And the reason is, is because our annual federal budget is 5.6 trillion. 2.2 trillion or 39% goes to fund Medicare, which is the elderly and Medicaid, which is the disabled. So connect the dots. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now what I wanted to blow your mind away with is that 
people people really have to get a grip on on this set of statistics. If you take nothing else away, you know, I want you to be understand advocacy is not being there to give comfort to your loved one. Advocacy is to protect them. But the second takeaway is how how far reaching this is. The United States is number one, number one in deaths worldwide for COVID. We have 1.1 million deaths. We only have 4.3% of the world's population, but we are number one. We have the best medical on the planet, but we're number one in deaths relative to COVID. Okay, so then just take that. But now the logical question is who's number two? And what are their numbers? Well, number two on the list of COVID deaths worldwide, so through 33 months of COVID, is India, number two. India has just over a half a million deaths, so less than 50% of the United States. Their population is four times that of the United States, and their footprint on the planet is only one-third. So what's going on? And what's going on is the United States is the only country who is incentivizing hospitals to follow protocols that are known to kill. So the two that most people are now familiar with, and you said you had interviewed um, Stacy and Sarah, so both their husbands were killed by remdesivir and ventilators. Those are the two that everybody seems to know about now, That anybody that's awake. Okay, so those two, I'll just give you the stats. Remdesivir has a 75% kill rate, three doses and more. The, the dose protocol from the NIH is five doses. I already mentioned, Ventilators have a 90% kill rate. Okay, so if you just think through this, so now we're 33 months into this. The public health emergency was just re up, so they're still doing it. The bonuses are still being paid. The NIH protocols are still being followed. So what what is going on? This can't be anybody, you know, for the first month of COVID. So back in February of 2020, you could say, well, they were, everybody, you know, everybody's panicking. We're just doing the best job we can. But think through, Jared, if you were a medical professional and you saw, I mean, because you see death, right? You're seeing, boy, everybody that we give remdesivir to is dying and everybody that we give a ventilators to, to is dying. Wouldn't you, just by your own human nature, go home and start researching what other people are doing, other doctors from around the world? Or are you just going to keep, you know, I use the analogy that if you, you're reshingling your roof and you hit your thumb with the hammer, how many times do you have to hit your thumb with the hammer before you're going to start holding the nail differently? You know, it, it's not going to take you 33 months of whacking your thumb. I mean, I mean, these people at this point, they can't be that ignorant. I'm talking yeah. about the medical professionals here. You know, they, they have to know. They do not get a free pass. They could get a free pass for the first month. But clearly we've got, you know, the banality of evil, the Milgram obedience experiment. All those things are behind this. But, uh, you know, if Nuremberg 2 happens, which I believe it, it could happen, in Nuremberg 1, the doctors did not get a free pass for following orders. And these medical professionals are not going to get a free pass for following orders because you still have a responsibility to use your head. Scott, I agree. One of the things that has been frustrating to me during COVID as I've watched is the um, 
the unwillingness of medical professionals, certainly not all of them. You and I have both met some real heroes uh, that have stood up and said, hey, enough of this. There are better ways and medicine is killing people. Um, you know, the Pierre Corys and Peter McCullough's of the world, Dr. Malone's right. and so on. But the unwillingness of the average doctor or nurse to stand up and say something about this and, and not just stand up and say something, but actually do something about it or refuse to continue to follow those orders that they know are not only ineffective, but are likely the cause of the death of so many people. And it is time to call these people out for what they are. And, and it's somewhere between evil and cowardice. I'm not sure which. Uh, and yeah, I get it. I've talked to people who have done things during COVID that they wouldn't have done otherwise because they wanted to keep their job or they've kept their mouth shut because they were afraid of whatever backlash. But there is a time when we must stand up and speak our truth. In fact, I did a show called It's Time to Speak Your Truth about two years ago, uh, you know, right in the heat of all this stuff. And boy, you wouldn't believe, Scott, how, how much ire I raised by just asking people to say what they really think and really believe about this. It's crazy. Uh, the backlash I got on that show just for saying, hey, if you believe something and you've done your research, it's time to stand up and talk about it. So yeah. let's uh, I, I know you've got another appointment. I could talk to you for 12 hours about this. Um, I want to share just something really, really quickly, and then I'm going to ask you to uh, to help me wrap this up. I have a 13-year-old. She's going to be 13 in a month, and she is the most bright and beautiful little girl you could possibly imagine. She's not little anymore. She's taller than me, which yeah. is not saying much if you met me, but, uh, <laughs> but she got that from her mom's side. I can say that. When, uh, when her mom and I met, it was our second marriage, and uh, we had both had a couple of kids, and her mom had very high-risk pregnancies prior to uh, Nora's, uh, pregnant, the pregnancy with Nora, which was our first. And, uh, I am as much as possible kind of keeping hospitals at arm's length, uh, the way that I, I see things and was raised to believe things, but, uh, was concerned about the risks. Uh, she'd had a child four months early, for instance, you know, some things like that. So we did go in and do some of the initial medical things. And they did an amniocentesis and they told us that Nora was likely going to be down syndrome. And Interesting. They, yeah. Wow. And they suggested to us that we should consider an abortion. And Unreal. I mean, just exactly it, what we talked about. Yeah. And so when you went into that, I thought, well, this is, it hits pretty close to home. And I, it was an interesting moment in my life because I would never consider an abortion for any, any other reason. And I'd never thought of this reason even coming up, right? It just wasn't even a thing I'd ever, had ever crossed my mind. And I thought, I can't see any reason why this would change anything in terms of how I would view my child. And so it was an easy no for both of us. Uh, that it wasn't, it wasn't a hard thing to say, but I know that there, uh, and there wasn't a bunch of pressure. They didn't, you know, lay into us and say, really, this is going to be really tough. Are you sure you want to do this? Whatever. Well, Nora came out without any disability. She's the most beautiful thing you could possibly ever imagine. I imagine uh, similar to what you uh, see in Grace, I see in my Nora. But 
what I will say about this that I think, I don't know, there's something about your story, Scott. And I keep asking myself, what is it? Because I've interviewed and I've talked to people. I, I work with a group called React 19. They have 40,000 plus severely injured people from the COVID vaccine. I've seen my share of really sad, twisted, gross stuff in the last couple of years. And so when your story came across my, uh, my plane and I heard it and, and heard you interviewed on the high wire was the first time I found you, there was something different about yours. And I think what it is, is that Grace had Down syndrome and I know two beautiful kids. I call them kids. They're in their thirties now, <laughs> but you know, Down's kids are always kids, right? That's and right. And I, which is one of the most beautiful parts about them being who they are, is that they don't lose that childlike innocence and beauty that uh, that we all tend to lose as we get older. And they're the most beautiful souls you'll ever meet. I'm not related to either one of them. I don't know either one of them, you know, really, really well, but I know both of them well enough to know who they are and what they are and what their hearts are like. And I think that's what it is about grace. And I think that's what's so infuriating to me about the story of grace is that one of the bright lights, one of the brightest yeah. lights in this on this earth was extinguished intentionally by people who claim to be there to save lives. And that is not, there's no excuse for that. There's nothing that you, that can be said regardless of money or intention or anything else that can excuse it. If it was a mistake, I can, I can live with that, but it's not a mistake. It wasn't close to a mistake. It was intentional. It was, it's obvious to me as someone who is, um, has dug into this stuff sometimes more than I wish I had, you know, because I feel like everything I turn over, there's another dark thing to see when it comes to COVID and, and hospitals in this country. But I just wanted to share that with you and, and with those of you listening, because if it can be done to someone like Grace, because I, I all I can do is put myself in the in the position of those doctors and those nurses and think of all the patients on that floor, the one I'd want to save is that beautiful, innocent soul, not the one I'd want to kill. And yeah. so with, <laughs> without trying to break down, <clears throat> I just want to tell you again, I'm so sorry that this happened, but I am so incredibly impressed with your willingness to get up on the soapbox that you've created and this, this situation is created for you and give people this information because we need to save the next grace. We really, really do. So with that, I want to ask you, what can people who have had their conscience pricked and their emotions pricked by this story, what can they do? Well, I, uh, You know, when you when you start talking about grace and all, I never miss miss somebody like this. You know, she was she was just a great kid. Anyway, the, it I'll uh, just give you a reference point so you can see where I'm coming from with with solutions. So. Through a, a Holocaust survivor that I've been doing interviews with, her name is Vera Sherov. I learned that you know the Holocaust started nine years earlier, 
And the first victims of Hitler's agenda were the were the uh, disabled uh, German children and the mentally ill and um, you know so that was the T4 program. So she sees this in a lot uh, broader view. She believes, which I've come to believe also, that we're at the beginning of a worldwide Holocaust. And so it's going to get worse. And so what I, I'm going to give the first solution is something that she taught me, which is thinking education produces disobedience. And I'm not talking about disobedience to God. I'm talking about disobedience to um, evil mandates, evil um, agendas. We cannot participate in this evilness. And we're commanded uh, in Romans 13 to not participate. So, you know, even pastors are in on this. Roughly 100,000 or up to 100,000 FEMA pastors I'm calling them FEMA pastors because they were trained by FEMA to implement emergency measures, you know, and so they bought into the Department of Homeland Security training. Um, that's false. You know, we, we've got to educate ourselves. So, and so I'm calling that deprogramming. We've got to deprogram ourselves and become educated. So if this pricks your heart, um, if you choose to be willfully ignorant after hearing this, um, I'm going to just tell you bluntly, and this is tough to say, but if you choose to be willfully ignorant after hearing this interview, you are now an accomplice to murder because we are all in this together. And I'm not talking about the all in this together crap that was fed to us at the beginning of COVID. I'm talking about we're all in this together to, to not let this go on. So one of the things you can get educated on is to watch for it. So what they did is the old, uh, with, with COVID, they used the Hegelian dialectic, which is a common tool that they use to convince us of something. So they create a problem, then they create a reaction, and then they create a solution. So this is like if, if um, the, uh, somebody came and, and burned my house down, and then so they created a problem, then they create a reaction that I call the fire department. Then what they want to do is get credit or they call the fire department. Then they want credit that they call the fire department to put out the fire that they started. Well, in this case, they, you know, they create COVID, then they create the propaganda with fear. And now they create the jab. You know, this is all a bunch of foolishness, but it, it's so easy to control somebody when they're fearful. God did not give us a spirit of fear. So you got to watch out for this problem reaction solution um, that they consistently use. This has been going on for a long time. I, I don't have enough time here to explain it. That's a whole other show. And then I would tell everybody that we all have at least one talent. You know, God holds us responsible for our, our whatever talents we're given. So what your one talent can be um, being honest with your relatives, sharing this podcast with somebody else, but don't keep it to yourself. You have an obligation. If you, it, once you're educated, you have an obligation and you can't be letting the fear of not being liked or somebody rejecting you as your friend that cannot be the driving force anymore. And then, I, you know, there's some immediate things. So, I mean, you could end up, we've got some resources on Grace's website. 
So, you know, there, the odds of somebody listening that ends up in the hospital for something, it can happen. So in one of the things I put on Grace's website after I realized that the blood supply could have vaccinated blood, well, how do you get... How do you get a blood supply if you need a surgery? So I've got a link on Grace's website. Getting your legal documents in order, you know, making sure your power of attorneys are in order. Of course, that's important, but you can't contract morality. You can't give these legal documents to the hospital. I know because we gave the hospital our power of attorney. They chose to, to not give informed consent. They chose to do everything behind our back. So don't rely on those documents. You just should have them in place. Um, if you end up in the hospital or your loved one does and it's against your will and they're holding you against your will. We have a hospital hostage hotline on Grace's website. You should find alternative sources of care now before you need it. We have some of those sources on Grace's website. Advocacy, you know, the paradigm of advocacy, which I've shared, you know, a couple of times here in this interview. Don't think you're there just to keep your loved one company. If you don't think you have the ability to be an advocate, you can hire an advocate. We have those resources on Grace's website. But all of that said, all of those things are important. Those give you something tangible you can do. But, you know, I, I believe the most important thing that you can do is, is strengthen your relationship with our Lord. And, you know, Grace had that relationship that, um, that I am, I'm working on. And I think that we're going to go through substantially worse times coming up. And we have an opportunity to share the gospel like we've never had in our lifetime, because the people who believe in, in Jesus as their savior should be the calmest people on earth. So as these things get worse, we have an opportunity to be grounded in our faith and share it with other people. So all these things I gave you, of course, they're important, but they don't hold a candle to being to being uh, grounded in your faith and making sure that you're right with God. So thanks for giving me that opportunity, Jared. Absolutely. And sorry to uh, <laughs> add to the emotion uh, that uh, I'm sure you get to feel on a regular basis, but uh, I just wanted you to know how I feel. I I want to say this uh, to all of you fathers and mothers out there. We're raising children right now in a world that uh, is in an unprecedented place. And one of the things that I'll add as a must do, uh, particularly if you have kids in the home, is to educate them on uh, on these things, obviously we have to be age uh, uh, you know appropriate in terms of what we can and uh, talk to them about. But I have had some really interesting conversations with my well. When this thing started, he was eight. He just turned ten. Uh, my little guy and why we uh, went to protests uh, to protest mandates and uh, why we uh, made signs that said we are all essential at the very beginning of uh, them deciding which businesses were essential and which businesses weren't and why I was spending my money to fly to California to uh, protest the mandates in California a few months ago. We need to set the example as parents for our children to follow because they are the generation that will have to fight this fight uh, as much or more than we will. Because as uh, I agree with you, Scott, the worst is yet to come. And right. we are in an interesting position, though. It feels <clears throat> it feels like an unwinnable war. I just had Del Bigtree on the show two weeks ago and asked him why he thinks why he still thinks we're winning. 
And I agree. Uh, there's some interesting stuff. We don't know what numbers we can trust, but we know that 30% of people didn't get that vaccine. Uh, prob- I think maybe more than that, but 30% are the numbers the, governor, the, the government wants to share with us, which means that 30% of us weren't snowed. And right. we are being pushed into our little echo chambers. Uh, we're being told that we're crazy and that we wear our tinfoil hats and whatever else they want to say about us. Uh, but there are a lot of us, a lot of us that believe this way and and recognize what's going on. And there are a whole bunch of people sitting in the middle that aren't quite sure what to believe. And those people can be influenced with the truth and with stories like Grace's. So I appreciate you doing what you're doing, Scott. For those of you listening, please take action within your own home. I think that's probably the very most important thing. Discuss this with your, with your kids. Um, definitely reach out to God and his strength will be very, very necessary in this fight. I personally believe that good always triumphs over evil. And we're just in a period where evil's having its way. But uh It's just a period and we'll get through it. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on Vitality Radio. Jared, it was quite an honor. Thank you very much. Also, for those of you listening, it it is ouramazinggrace.net, right? So O-U-R, amazinggrace.net. That's the website where all of these uh, wonderful things are. It is a great website and uh, should be shared and uh, and certainly uh, dig around. And there's a lot of really great resources. And if you want all the evidence you could possibly imagine about what happened to Grace, it's there as well. Thanks again, Scott. I appreciate you. I'd love to have you on again, maybe six months or a year to kind of see what's happening with Grace's case, uh, what you've been able to accomplish, uh, what you've uncovered next, because I know you're Mr. Investigative Reporter at this point. You're really digging deep into this stuff, (laughs) which I greatly appreciate. Yeah, God made me that way. It's interesting. (laughs) It is what it is, right? Right. All right. You saw, heard me get emotional, Scott get emotional. It's an emotional topic. Uh, If you have kids, especially just to even consider one of yours uh, in that position that Grace was in is uh, almost more than you can stand to think about. But uh, I just want to reiterate the importance of sharing this story, getting the word out. There's a systemic problem in this country, and it is massive and it's dollars and it's influence and it's power and there's all these things wrapped up into it and I've been doing Vitality Radio for almost 15 years now and uh, I will say this this is what I advocate about is medical tyranny uh, the lies and malpractice that come out of medicine that is done intentionally and medicine as a whole being an absolutely broken system. And I really believe that that is the case. And if you listen to my show long enough, you either believe that's the case or you think I'm nuts and uh, a joy to listen to because of that. I'm not sure which, but uh, I feel incredibly strongly about this. And I will continue to share these messages for as long as I am capable of doing so. Please do something with this information. Advocate for someone that you love. Advocate for yourself. Get the information into the ears of people who need to hear it. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio.
both been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.